In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. As Pastor Tim mentioned, today we begin a brand new sermon series, Expect the Unexpected. I'm really excited about it. Maybe you've seen some of the publications that we've had the past month or so. In this sermon series for the next five weeks, we're going to stick with what we've been doing in Pentecost. We'll stay with the Gospel of Luke. We're going to explore five very specific things. Five things that are different about you specifically because you are a Christian. Five things that maybe, maybe aren't always on the, uh, the forefront of your brain necessarily. Five things that I hope that after these five weeks, you're going to begin to expect them to happen in your life. And you're actually going to welcome them and use them not only for your benefit, but the benefit of other people, the benefit of this church. I've got high hopes for this sermon series. And I know, I know that the Holy Spirit will work through it. Today, the, fi- the first of those five unexpectations. Expect unexpected costs. It's, it's not really a secret, at least I don't think it is, that as Americans, we're not very good at budgeting. Maybe if you have ever been to any financial seminar of any type, the person standing up there, the first thing that they show you is some glaring statistic that says, this is how much debt we have in America. This is how bad we are at planning for our financial future. About a year ago, USA Today wrote an article that actually thinks America is turning it around. It said that we as Americans now, we like to budget because we have iPhones. They said, we have all these, smart, we have all these apps now. We, we have ways where uh, planning for, for your financial future can be like this fun little maze. Or saving for an emergency fund can be just a little bit of a brain teaser. And so whenever any unexpected financial cost comes up, you're going to be set and you're not going to have to worry about it too much. Well, take that with a grain of salt. But I know at least for the little bit I do know about budgeting, budgeting at its core is all about getting our wants and our needs in line with what things cost. It's making sure that those things line up so that at the end of the day we're not bankrupt. I'm not here to talk about financial budgeting though this text from Luke chapter 9 doesn't give me that opportunity. But it does give me the opportunity to talk about spiritual budget and what it means to have your wants and your needs in your life when it consists of all things spiritual and all things Christian and to get that in line with what these costs are. What are the costs of following Jesus? And when the unexpected costs pop up in my life, in your life, how can you have been budgeted already so that you already expect those costs? In this section in Luke chapter 9, five men are surrounded around Jesus. They come up to Jesus and they all have a certain plan for where they think the future is going to go. They've already budgeted for whatever their uh, next action is going to be, but Jesus says, no, that's, that's not the way to go. He turns them away from that, and he gives them some other advice. You can find this section of Luke chapter 9 on page 12 of your bulletins. I'll read that now. Please follow along with me, if you will. 
And also, please stand out of respect for the words and works of Jesus. From Luke chapter 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. The section of scripture contains some of the most quotable or, or tweetable words of Jesus. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? He says, well, foxes have, have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's kind of unexpected. And I think that these words are so quotable because they are harsh. And they're full of some law preaching. So this text gives me the opportunity to stand up here like one of those old-timey preachers and just pound on the ambo and spit fire and brimstone, spit the law. And that sermon would sound kind of like this. Um, you all just got to be better. You all just got to get up out of your seats and get out and somehow figure out a way to be a better follower of Christ. You got to do it. I don't know a better way to miss the point of the text than to preach that sermon. I don't know a better way to take away from the point that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are trying to make here than to preach that sermon. Because this book that we have in front of us, the Bible, is not just this self-help book that says, be better and this is how to do it. But the book is a book that says, Jesus is already the best. And his best is now your best because of the cross. And so we take great care today to look at the words, the best, Jesus speaks to you and me, and how those best words can be our best. Two men, the first two of the five who are the characters of this story, James and John, they had their own idea, their own path that they thought they should take. In another place in the Bible, in the Gospel of Mark, Luke gives them the nickname, excuse me, Jesus gives them the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. I'm not sure exactly why they got this nickname, but maybe some of the actions that they display here uh, show you why they're called the Sons of Thunder. 
Because what's going on here, Jesus and his disciples, they're all going to Jerusalem, but they take a little pit stop in a small town, a Samaritan village. But the Samaritans, they kick them out. They say, no, you can't stay here. The Samaritans had something else in mind. They had a different way of thinking. They did not agree with what Jesus and the disciples were doing. And James and John take this to heart. James and John get a little bit ticked off. James and John act as their nickname would suggest, and they walk up to Jesus and say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire on this city? Do you want us to destroy it? James and John wanted to act thunderously with rage and violence, didn't they? Jesus turns them around, rebukes them, says, no, just shake the dust off your feet. We'll go to a different place. The cost that they had to address for following Jesus here was they had to act contrary to what they wanted to do. They needed to deny their own sinful urges and follow what Jesus had in store. The devil works powerfully in this world. And he's worked powerfully to create a stigma surrounding Christianity in today's culture. The stigma that Christians are just sons and daughters of thunder. You know what I mean by this? That Christians are just people that when they're faced with opposition, when, when we are faced with somebody who has a different view than us, that we're just going to act with maybe violence or rage or hatred or at least some form of separation. And the devil has worked uh, very much in an in-your-face way to do this. Maybe you've seen some of the things in the media in the past years uh, of Christians acting out in a way that just breaks your heart. Raising these signs, these, these picket signs, or, or doing things that... <laughs> that you know that you would never do because Christianity is a religion of love, isn't it? It's not a religion of hate. I know you know these things. But the devil works subtly as well to add to this stigma that we're all just sons and daughters of thunder. It's as subtle as, as clicking, clicking like or retweet, or repost, or share on an article that, well, it's got some Christian elements to it, so, so it seems like it's a good thing. But you read to the end of the article, and it's got severe, strong undertones of thunderous preaching to a subsection, to a population of America that, that you've never personally met, or you've never personally been in contact with. Or, or the devil works subtly when you're with some of your Christian friends in a coffee shop, bemoaning the fact that the world's being overtaken by sinners, bemoaning the fact that the legislation's going the wrong way, bemoaning the fact that everything is going down the tubes. To the followers of your social media sites or to those sitting in the booths in front of you and behind you, what are they left with? What stigma surrounding Christianity are they You're just sons and daughters of thunder? Or is the focus on Christ? 
If you look at verse 51 of this text, the very first verse, says that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his path that way because the time was ready for him to be lifted up. At this time, months before he was going to die, Jesus knew the cost. Jesus knew what it was going to be, what he had to budget for in order to save sinners. To save the followers of your news feed, to save the people sitting in coffee shops, to save you and me right now. Every single one of us, well, the devil has worked either subtly or very strongly in our lives at some point or another and gotten us to act as sons and daughters of God. But Jesus budgeted for that. Jesus walked a straight path to Jerusalem, knowing that he was about to be whipped and beaten and strung up and lifted up on a cross, knowing that he was going to be pinned on that thing until he died, knowing that he was going to be taken down and shoved into this dark tomb all so that he could do one thing and one thing only, forgive your sins. And Jesus knew that he was going to be lifted up one more time into heaven for you and for me to stamp the victory seal on all those acts that were done in Jerusalem. Jesus paid the great cost for sin. In the second lesson for today, the Apostle Paul says, he sums up the law in five words. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is how we can now act for all people because Jesus loved us so very much. Jesus counted the cost. And Jesus paid it on the cross. He did His very best, which was enough, which was perfection. And so He gave that to you and me and it is available for everybody out there. Isn't that the message that is likable and shareable and tweetable and repostable. Isn't that the message that is the Christian religion? And even though at Jesus' time they didn't have any of these smartphone apps or any of these social media sites, well, that message was still shared, wasn't it? Shared widely. And here specifically shared to three more men. Three men who walked up to Jesus as He was on His way to Jerusalem And they had heard this message of love. They had heard what Christianity is all about and who this Jesus guy is. And so they're like, wow, we got to follow him. They had great intentions. But Jesus says, your intentions are split. For the first man, he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but you're not going to have a place to lay your head if you follow me. You're going to have to become very uncomfortable in your stability. To the next man, he says, well, no, you can't go home and bury your father first. Let the dead take care of the dead. You're going to have to give up some responsibility at home in order to follow me. And then to the third man, he, he says, I know you love your family, But no, you can't go back and say goodbye to them because you're going to have to have a refocus of who's really your family. 
going to follow. These three men, they were distracted in these three costs, which I like to call the three E's. Stability, responsibility, and family. Pretty simple to be, I guess maybe not simple, but it's, but it's easier to set up our lives with those three E's in mind to make our lives easy. It's easy to set up your budget so that things are pretty stable at home, so that your costs equal the co- so that your ex- your your income equals the expense of living. Or it's pretty easy to just focus on your responsibilities, so that in your work life you're working hard enough where you have a steady job and you have that job security. And it's simple to make sure that everything's comfortable in your family by maybe sweeping some of the hard conversations underneath the rug not talking about them, just letting the discipline or the confession and the forgiveness go so you don't have to deal with it. Jesus says the cost of following him might call you out to get a little bit uncomfortable. To flip your budget around so that the number one line item is the goal he talks about, the kingdom of God. To work in your work life so that the best hours of the week of your responsibilities are spent in time with Jesus, or at least so there is time. And Jesus asks us to flip our family around so that we're not just deciding on just being comfortable, but so that we can thrive as Jesus as the head of it. So that Jesus is the glue that holds the family together and is the third strand that is wound into that cord that is not easily broken. When Jesus is the head of these three costs, the unexpected thing that happens is that they're not costs anymore. They are benefits. Because what better way to be stable than to be stable in Christ? What better way to be responsible than to be responsible in Christ? What better way to have a family than to have a family where Jesus is the head? Where what He has done on that cross is what filters down and trickles in and fills the cracks and brings you together. The unexpected thing about the costs of following Jesus is that once they're at the forefront of our brains, we see what Jesus does to us. And we see that he makes them benefits. All because the greatest cost, death on a cross, was already paid by him. And so when you set up your spiritual budget, you can write there right on the type, on the, on the, as a title, costs paid for by Christ. Costs now are benefits. Because those three things, your your family, your responsibility, your stability is one in Christ. Amen. Please stand.